Welcome to Asset Protection Today with Attorney Bill Alexander. Jason Kong here with you alongside the man himself, Bill Alexander. Bill, how are you doing today? Good morning. Hope you're doing well. I'm wonderful, Bill. It's always a pleasure to get to spend some time with you each weekend discussing fascinating topics when it comes to asset protection. And I know previously in an older episode, we were discussing trusts, and that's a subject that you wanted to revisit today. I did want to get back on the subject of trusts. It's something that a lot of families um, are interested in because uh, I think – uh, the word is out that trust-based planning uh, actually works really well for many, many families. It's not that everybody needs it. And uh, North Carolina is not a state like some, New York, New Jersey, Florida, California, where if you don't have a trust, you pay through the nose because upon uh, you know, when you die, the court costs of not having a trust uh, just – you know, the probate process uh, administration of your state is so high. Uh, North Carolina, uh, unlike some of those states, has relatively limited cost, uh, not necessarily cheap uh, if you have a, a larger estate, uh, but North Carolina is capped at $6,000. Um, so that's a whole lot less than what some other states impose uh, on their citizens. Uh, But regardless of that, trusts allow families, allow folks who have created a legacy uh, or folks who have more complicated situations. And, uh, you know, what what constitutes complicated? It it can be the fact that you're in a second or third marriage with children by a previous marriage. It could be that you have children who are not yet mature enough um, to have the responsibility of handling uh, a substantial inheritance, uh, or it's because you're trying to do something particular for a child or create asset protection for them. You know, so many of my clients are actually concerned about leaving a, a nice inheritance to a child who could end up in a divorce. And I'll, I will tell you that a lot, an awful lot of clients create a trust in order to protect the legacy that they leave their child or children uh, to protect them from the possibility of a divorce down the road. I mean, we all want to love our in-laws and, and to <laughs> the, our children's spouses and hope that their marriages are good. But we have to recognize that there's going to be a large percentage of divorces out there. And asset protection is something that you can do with a trust uh, that you can't do with a regular will that most people have. I mean, most people have what we call a sweetheart plan, which is I leave everything to my spouse and then equally to our children, you know, and that's that's the Ozzie and Harriet plan. Um, and so, uh, you know, trust-based planning, and, and I don't want to get too complicated here because most folks create what's called a revocable trust, and we've talked about it, it's, it's, uh, and it can be a real simple type of trust that all it does is avoid probate, uh, which, which does make that process faster and easier for your survivors. 
But there are an awful lot of trusts that don't do anything more than that, uh, which is a waste as far as I'm concerned. And, of course, last week we talked about what are some of those things that f- folks really should have in a trust if they're going to spend the money to create a trust. And and this morning what I really wanted to focus on in talking about trust is the relationship uh, and the importance of the trustee. Um, okay, so to remind folks of how a trust works, it's actually a trust is a contract. It's an agreement. Uh, and in most cases, uh, a, a person creates a trust, and that's the grantor, or, you know, it's called different things, a trust maker, or trust, trust or set lore, lots of different words, but it's the person who creates the trust and names a trustee. And hopefully, if they've done things right, they've transferred their property from their individual names to the trustee. And the trustee is the person who manages the property that's transferred to the trust for the benefit of the beneficiaries. And to, uh, now, um, to make this uh, <laughs> seem um, uh, easy is the fact that the in almost every case, when you create a trust, guess who you name as your trustee? Yourself. So you're basically creating a, an agreement and uh, agreeing to abide by the terms of the trust that you've created for yourself. And the trustee um, then – and, of course, you're also naming yourself as a beneficiary. And because – it's it's too close, if you will, in terms of you're creating it for yourself and your family. Uh, you're naming yourself as the person who manages it for yourself. And then, uh, of course, you're the primary beneficiary along with other family members, your spouse, hopefully, and, and your children uh, or grandchildren. Uh, but the fact is, is because it's um, uh, like that, the Internal Revenue Service ignores these trusts. They're they're called grantor trusts, and you don't have to file a tax return for it. You you do have to report all your income, but you report it on your personal income tax return, and you use your Social Security number for the trust. Okay, so now let's get back to the trustee. Well, the the thing I mean, well. The biggest mistake that I see on a regular basis is people create a trust and either either initially or over time, um, their property doesn't get transferred to the trustee. Well, a trust isn't going to work unless property is transferred to the trustee. And if you create a trust and, uh, of course, your last will and testament at that point is what we call a pour-over will. And it says, your will says, well, if I haven't put it into my trust before I die, put it in my trust at my death. Well, guess what? In that case, your trust hadn't done much to help you because all your property has to go through probate and go through court administration and all the costs that you were trying to avoid – in order to get it into the trust, and then you have to do a trust administration on top of that. So in essence, you've just caused your family more pain and time and delays 
than if you hadn't had a trust at all. So you have to do it right. Uh, and okay, so uh, what about this trustee? Well, I can assure you one thing. If you name yourself as trustee, you can trust that person to do what's in your best interest. <laughs> Wouldn't you agree? <laughs> so, um, uh, but here's here's the key. Not not everybody uh, creates uh, or a trust and names himself as trustee, or they have terms of their trust that take effect upon their death, and they name their spouse. Uh, as the trustee at their death, uh, not always, because it might be a successive spouse instead of your first spouse. Um, and uh, then later on, oftentimes, uh, you name your children as trustee of the trusts that are created for their particular benefit after both you and your spouse are gone. Now, if you didn't catch on, one of the things that's real important is most folks do not use corporate trustees as their trustee. In other words, you don't have to name a bank, trust department, or other corporate trustee as your trustee. You don't have to have a professional trustee. You can name your own family. You can name yourself, a, 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 you know, initially. You can, and then you can name family members as the trustee after that. Now, for the, for some families, particularly those who are ultra wealthy, corporate fiduciaries, corporate trustees may be the best solution for them. Just depends on circumstances. But the great majority of well-to-do families that create trust do not use corporate trustees. They use fam- they use themselves, and then they use their own family members. But one of the things that's really important when it comes to who the trustee is, is that not everyone has that person in their life that they can name as a trustee of their trust after themselves that, that, that they know that they can depend on to do what is right. And here's, here's, here's the, the lesson to be learned. If you don't have a good trustee your trust agreement isn't going to work right. And so that's one of the key elements of create. If you want to create a trust, make darn sure that you have a good person to name as the trustee. And yes, whether it's yourself or someone else, they do have a duty, a responsibility, an obligation to carry out the terms of the trust. But you have to put those terms in your trust so that they have a duty to carry them out. So obviously a, a better trust agreement is important so that there are duties that have to be carried out by the trustee in compliance with the agreement. And you'd be surprised how many trust agreements really don't have anything in there about uh, that obligation, which is really important. So uh, you're looking at me, so I know we have to take a break, but I want to continue on this line to talk about what makes for a good trustee. That was going to be my next question, Bill. And uh, you've gone over some points that 
make it really apparent that it's important to have professional help when setting up a trust. Schedule an appointment to speak with Bill. Maybe you have a trust already set up and you want that reviewed, or maybe you want to start from scratch. Go to WGALaw.com. There you can find plenty of information about Bill. You can schedule an appointment. You can also register for his seminars at WGALaw.com or call 919-256-7000. 2567000. We're taking a quick break and we will be back with more. This is Asset Protection Today with Attorney Bill Alexander. Stick around. Welcome back to Asset Protection Today with Attorney Bill Alexander. I am Jason Kong. Happy to be alongside Bill Alexander today. Remember, you can always find more information about Bill online at WGALaw.com. WGALaw.com. We are continuing our conversation on trusts. And Bill, we were just discussing the importance that the trustee plays and um, how, you know, when we have assigned ourselves as trustee, we can trust ourselves. But uh, what makes a good trustee? outside of ourselves well of course and and you have to realize that there are times that you may not be able to act as trustee for your own trust i mean that's what disability planning is all about and that's something that i focus on in my trust is to make sure that the folks that create a revocable trust for themselves create a disability plan. I mean, you have the opportunity to do it. You have the opportunity to give family uh, trustees, if you will, instructions on how to care for you if you become disabled, and, and it gives them a fiduciary duty to carry those instructions out. Really important. Well, this week I was helping a, a wonderful family, uh, first marriage, you know, normal marriage, if you will, long-term marriage, two children. They had a daughter and a son who were uh, in their 20s. But their concern, and they were um, well-to-do, their concern was our children aren't old enough and mature enough, even though they were in their 20s, um, to give them the responsibility individually of being trustees. And so, one of them asks me, well, what should we look for in a trustee? So here we are. Okay, so what did I tell them? I said, well, the most important quality of a trustee, particularly if you're choosing a family member, is absolute honesty. You know, someone that you know uh, in your heart is if you give them the responsibility of managing a bunch of money for your children or grandchildren, will not take advantage of them. They're you know honest as the day is long. They wouldn't they wouldn't take a penny uh, out of somebody else's uh, piggy bank. <laughs> so uh, that to me is um, the most important quality you can have in. Uh, a trustee, a person who is absolutely honest uh, and has the integrity to do what they say they will do. All right, so the second uh, personality trait that you're looking for in a trustee, and this is the this is the trait that is harder to get, particularly if you're looking at a corporate trustee, 
And that is a trustee who actually cares about the beneficiary. You know, so if they're honest and they care, that is what's important. And so um, now you might say, well, what about their ability to manage money and their ability to know what to distribute and how to distribute it and all that good stuff? Well, the fact is that you can't take a dishonest person or an uncaring person and just because they're good with money and make them into a good trustee. But if you start with a person who's honest and caring, (laughs) you know what? They can hire advisors. They can hire a financial planner. They can hire a good lawyer and a good accountant uh, that can help them invest their money properly, have good tax planning for for the trust and the beneficiaries, uh, and to distribute, you know, they can even hire um, uh, uh, counsel. I mean, folks whose job it is to help them to determine what to distribute and how to distribute it. So, while while you can't uh, change a person who's not uh, absolutely honest into that person. Uh, you can take an honest person and give them good advisors, surround themselves with the right kinds of people to so that your trust will work the way you want it to. So those, to me, are the real qualities that you use. Now, what did we do in this particular case with this family that have two uh, adult children, but they're not you know, they have some issues, both of them, each child had had some issues, not too serious. But the fact is, the children, I like, and same, same is true of my own children, they were very different. They have their own strengths, their own weaknesses, and that's true for all of us as individuals. Um, and so when we really thought about it is, well, why not make them be co-trustees? You know, in other words, make them work together where their uh, their strengths and weaknesses balance each other out. So we we toyed with now obviously we weren't worried about who the trustee is while both parents are alive and uh we really weren't uh concerned unless uh, there was a the surviving spouse was disabled then who the trustee would be. Well, in this particular case, it was like, well, one of the spouses had a sibling who was a good person, uh, a little bit older, though, and they were afraid that, you know, maybe uh, after a period of time, it might not be a good idea. Well, so the the real issue was to whether to take that sibling and have that person be a sole trustee for a few years or a co-trustee with each child or to let the children work together as co-trustees and use the uncle as an advisor as opposed to a trustee. Um, So those are the kind of things that make a difference. And then the last thing would be, okay, let's say you you name the uncle as a trustee. Um, Most of the time you, you know that that's a good situation, but sometimes you don't. Well, if if you're not absolutely certain, you might be better off to require that that person have a bond, you know, in other words, an insurance bond. Yes, it takes money out of the trust, but that insurance bond protects your children 
from the misdeeds of your trustee. So oftentimes, if you're not quite sure, it's best to have a co-trustee, someone who's always looking over the shoulder of the other, uh, just to make sure, because they're dealing with money outside of the court purview, and it's important to make sure that things are done right. That is such an important part of it, and that's why, again, you need to seek out a professional when making these decisions. Uh, I'm so glad that uh, this couple had your advice, Bill, because that's a hard decision to make, and everyone has uh, challenging family dynamics of some sort in their family, and uh, again, that's why you need help with guiding these waters. Go to WGALaw.com. Schedule an appointment to speak with Bill. You can also call 919-256-7000, Seven thousand, and don't forget wgalaw.com is where you can also register for Bill's free seminars. He does these the second Wednesday of every month. They cover the topics of long-term care assistance, Medicaid, VA benefits, and also his other seminar dealing with asset protection and trust planning, which we are talking about today. A quick break and back with more. You are listening to Asset Protection Today with Attorney Bill Alexander. We'll be right back. This is Asset Protection Today with Attorney Bill Alexander. You can find more about him at WGALaw.com. That's WGALaw.com, or you can call 919-256-7000. Bill, I want to get to uh, the subject of retirement accounts and required minimum distributions, but before we do that, we have a final thought when it comes to trusts. Well, it, it has to do with how important your trust agreement is, uh, particularly when we're looking at your children, uh, in other words, creating a protected trust for each one of your children, sometimes for your grandchildren, oftentimes for your grandchildren. Um, but the fact is, is, I mean, think back as parents, and do our children always do what we want them to do? Do our children think like we do? Uh, <laughs> well, I don't think, I, I know folks are out there laughing just like you are, Jason, because the bottom line is that that um, is something that uh, we know is an issue, <laughs> and and so it's this is why it can be really important to have a better trust agreement, one that lays out what your intentions are, and then when we create a trust for our children, the trust needs to say specifically, this is what I want done. This is what I want for you, without tying their hands, I mean, without putting them in handcuffs. You don't want that either, but you do want to have your trust to guide them in the direction that you really want them to go. And so that trust agreement's important because, okay, you've named your child as the trustee. So we've gotten past that immature stage. The uncle's no longer involved. The the child is mature enough to take control of their trust and hire and fire their trustees. So the issue is if your trust agreement spells out your hopes and dreams for your child and what you really want that trust to do for them and how you want the trust managed, 
your trustee has the fiduciary obligation to carry out those wishes. So what I'm getting at is without handcuffing your children, you can actually put terms into your trust that helps them keep their trust more as you have intended it. Now, it's not going to be perfect. There's no such thing as perfection in life. Uh, but it will be closer to what you wanted it to be if your trust agreement spells those things out. Excellent. Well, Bill, uh, let's switch topics now and get to retirement accounts. I know uh, required minimum distributions have uh, been on people's minds as things are maybe a little bit different now with the coronavirus. So let's talk about that. Well, there's a lot of confusion as it relates to required minimum distributions. And of course, so for those, anyone with a retirement account, and there's some basics that folks need to know, because the fact is that everybody should have retirement accounts at this point. You know, it's not like Social Security is going to be enough to support you in your retirement. So saving is very important. And for most folks, the easiest way to save while they're working is through retirement accounts. Well, um, the the old rule and the continuing rule for some folks is that you have to take required minimum distributions each year when you reach 70 and a half. The year you turn 70 and a half, um, and, and of course, the year you turn 70 and a half is not necessarily the year you turn 70. So uh, it's 70 and a half, and that rule has changed, so there's a lot of confusion. Now, the good, the good news is that because of the CARES Act, this year is a year that no one has to take a required minimum distribution. The, the, you know, it's all all income free this year. Uh, You don't have to take one, even if you would have otherwise had to take one. Okay. But like I said, there's a lot of confusion and I want to clear it up to some degree. Okay. So now anyone, the new rule is that you're not required to take minimum required distributions until you turn the age of 72. So they're giving you an extra year and a half. But that does not apply to everyone. And that's where there's a lot of confusion. Now, you got to remember, this year doesn't count because you don't have to take it this year, although you might want to or you should. But what's the rule? If you turned age 70, not 70 and a half, age 70, before July 1, 2019, then you are required to take a minimum required distribution beginning in the year that you turn 70 and a half. Do you get that? So if you're 70 before July 1, 2019, the required minimum distribution rule is not age 72. It's still 70 and a half. Okay? Now, with that said, now this this thing, what I'm going to say now, applies to everybody who has to take a required minimum distribution, recognizing that this year nobody has to take a required minimum distribution. Okay, so the question is, should I not take one? Okay, well, here's the bad news. Uh, 
if you don't take it this year, you have to take two years of required distributions next year. You get that? So the year 2020, you don't have to take one. But in 2021, you have to take the 2020 distribution and the 2021 distribution. Well, if you have a fairly large uh, IRA or 401k and you're required to take a minimum distribution, you need to get a calculator out and your tax return and to figure if you have to take two distributions in one year, will that put you into a different tax bracket? Well, I mean, that's a big deal if you have to pay a higher percentage of taxes because you delayed a year. There's also the possibility that income tax rates could go up next year and put you into a higher tax bracket anyway. So maybe you want to take it this year so you'd be in a lower tax bracket uh, in both years. Uh, so that uh, now you have to take minimum required distributions when you're supposed to, because if you don't, you get a 50 percent penalty over and above the income tax that you would have to take uh, on the distribution anyway. So that's a pretty onerous penalty if you don't take it. So you got to make sure you take your um, minimum distribution. Now, um timing of your distribution if this is the first year that you're supposed to take a distribution you actually have an extra few months you have until april 1st but after your first year then you have to take your distributions before the end of the year so most folks are in that got to take it before the end of the year uh in terms of when you take distributions now there's also confusion over Uh, what accounts you have to take distributions from. And it depends on what kind of retirement account you have. If you have several different IRAs, individual retirement accounts, uh, of course, there's a calculator where you can figure up what your required minimum distribution is each year. It's based on how much you had in your account at the end of the year, of the previous year, plus your Uh, your age, in other words, your life expectancy age, that's a percentage. And so you can actually calculate your required minimum distribution for the year, the first day of the year, you know, because it's based on how much was in your account at the end of last year, regardless of what the account does uh, in terms of investments and whether it goes up or down during the year, your, your required distribution is already calculated. So if you have an IRA, you don't have to take the distribution out of each account. You can consolidate for tax purposes and take the distribution out of one account as opposed to all of the different accounts. But you do have to take the entire distribution for all your accounts, whether you take it from each account or one account. Now, the rule is different for employer-based plans, 401k plans. If you have a 401k, you, and let's say you have multiple, you have, you've worked for different employers and you still left those accounts with, with those 401k plans. 401ks, you actually must take your distribution out of each 401k plan. You can't consolidate it and take it out of one versus another. And so that is really important for folks, um, 
to understand in terms of of what you have to take. And of course, as I've mentioned, you you have to avoid mistakes. And of course, you can take distributions as early as 59 and a half without a penalty if you take money out of your retirement account. Now there's some exceptions to the rules, but uh, f- the general rule is if you take any distribution prior to age 59 and a half, there's a 10% penalty on top of the income tax that you have to pay. But after you turn 59 and a half, you can take distributions, whether they're required or not, uh, you'd still have to pay income tax, uh, but you don't have to uh, pay a penalty. And so that's really important as how it all works together in terms of uh, retirement accounts. Now, last thing is Roth IRAs are the exceptions. You do not have to take minimum required distributions from a Roth. And of course, when you take your distributions, they're income tax free, which is one of the nice things about a Roth. Um, But at the same time, uh, the minimum required distribution rules apply to all other retirement accounts, whether they are uh, ERISA-based plans, you know, employer-based plans, or whether they're individual retirement plans. Well, that's important to know. You don't want to be stuck with a surprise uh, in a, a upcoming April when it's tax time. So, uh, Bill, thank you for that. And this is why you should always listen to Asset Protection today. You get some great tips from Bill. We got to take a quick break, but we will be back with more. Stick around. You're listening to Asset Protection Today with attorney Bill Alexander. are listening to Asset Protection Today with Attorney Bill Alexander. I am Jason Kong. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we are having a discussion. We've talked about a lot of things today. We've talked about trusts. We've talked about retirement accounts and required minimum distributions. And, Bill, we're going to switch topics again. And it seems like every week we see uh, something come across the uh, the news wire that uh, mortgage rates have reached an all-time low this week. And uh, with that, so many people hear about refinancing. And uh, I know you wanted to address some incentives and mistakes when it comes to refinancing. Well, uh, you know, the housing market is still relatively strong for those folks who have a job, <laughs> you know, or uh, or they're well-to-do or, or the like. But uh, mortgage rates uh, for home buyers is as low as I've ever seen them. Um, I can't remember a time when, when mortgage rates were lower than they are right now. There, I mean, there have been a couple other times when they've been similarly low, uh, but right now the mortgage rates are absolutely terrific. For, so as a result, there are a lot of folks who are have still have a debt to pay, and they're thinking in terms of, I want to refinance our mortgage, or I'm thinking about it. And so it, it's uh, there are some factors that I want to throw out there. Now, hopefully, all my good clients out there have their mortgages paid off, and they're not worried about that anymore. You know, that's behind them. You know, because one of the things I do recommend to folks is to try to have their mortgage paid off by the time they retire. But that's not true for everybody. You know, there are 
folks out there for circumstances beyond their control or because they've had advisors who've told them, oh, no, don't do that. Just invest in the market and, you know, just keep on paying your mortgage as opposed to paying it off. And so it's I mean, I from my own perspective, I think what we're going through right now is a pretty strong uh reason why people should try to have their mortgages paid off because when the the economy hits sour notes not having debt to pay it really helps folks a lot so in retirement if you don't have rent to pay and you don't have a mortgage to pay your retirement money goes a whole lot farther for you so um, that's one of that's the reason why i tell folks that best planning is to have your debts paid off when you retire but okay so let's say you're younger or, or you're just out of luck and you have a mortgage and you know you're going to pay a mortgage the rest of your life well should you reti- i mean should you refinance well if you can get um a percent less then the the answer is maybe it really, it, it, like a lot of legal answers, it depends on a lo- uh, on your personal circumstances as to whether it makes sense to refinance. But if you're thinking about refinancing, then the first thing I would do uh, is comparison shop. You have to understand that there's a lot of variables when it comes to refinancing, and it's not as simple as just what's the interest rate that you're offering you know what but but a couple things you should look at would be what's the interest rate if we refinance on a 30-year mortgage what's the interest rate if we do a 20-year or 15-year mortgage Um, because typically you will get a lower rate and it may make a difference to you if you take a 15-year mortgage or if your incentive is we want to have our mortgage paid off by the time we retire. So we want a shorter-term mortgage this time because uh, we can afford it. Uh, and, of course, uh, if you can lower your interest rate by a percent over 15 to 30 years, that's going to save you $50,000 or more in interest payments uh, for most people. Uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of incentive there. But the first key is to shop around. Y- you know, there's you see these advertisements for Rocket Mortgage and all that good stuff. Well, you need to look at those mortgage companies, but you also need to look at a lot of others. Um, uh, I know they used to publish it in the newspaper each week as to what the mortgage rates were. Um, but so that's the first thing of comparison, but it's not the only thing. So once you figure, now you have to also look at the cost of refinancing. And there are a lot of folks that say, oh, there's no cost refinancing, but there's always a cost. It's the fact that some mortgage companies will put those the cost of refinancing into your mortgage and you pay it off over time. Well, that doesn't necessarily save you money. Or another thing that you have to look out for is the fact that some mortgage companies look like they're, they're offering you a lower rate, but it comes with points. And what points mean is that you're paying that interest rate in advance. 
So that can be a lot more expensive if you're actually paying points. So you have to look at the overall cost of refinancing, which is a combination of the interest rate being offered, the um, whether there are points or not, because that's paying interest in advance, and the actually closing costs that are factored into um, to the refinancing. So all of those together have to be looked at. And then, you know, if it if it offers you a, a much lower payment and that makes it easier for you to get your your loan paid off over time, then that's a, a good thing. Uh, but you also have to look at a, a few other factors. And for instance, uh, ha, you know, uh, how's your job stability? <laughs> you know, um, there's a lot of worry today about whether, you know, we have a good job today. The question is, will we have a good job tomorrow? Uh, it, you know, um, there's a lot of restructuring going on. So um, so one question you have to ask yourself is, is um, do I have a job that I know uh, that uh, I'm good to go uh, for the next uh, – for the foreseeable future? You know, my job is not at risk of being cut. Um, another thing to factor in is are we going to live in this house – uh, for the rest of our lives or for the next 10 or 15 years. Because if our plan is to, or we have the type of job where we have to move around and it's a likelihood that we're going to have to sell the house in three or four years, you're going to lose money on refinancing. You're you're better off. I mean, unless you know you're going to be in your house for more than five years at least. And, of course, the, if you know that this is the house you want to retire in, then that's a different situation than where you're still uh, needing to be mobile and and those kinds of things. So that that's key. Now the last thing has to do with your credit score, and so uh, you want to make sure you know what your credit score is, and you want to make sure that you're not doing anything right now that might negatively affect your credit score, such as. Uh, opening new lines of credit, that's going to reduce your credit score, I mean, or make your credit score worse, uh, or making a large purchase uh, that you're financing or the like, or taking on any kind of loan, or moving significant funds from one count to another. All of those actions can actually hurt your credit score. And if your credit score is worse, then the rate you receive from the mortgage company will be higher. So the better the credit score, the better you're going to get in terms of of looking at a rate. There's a lot to consider, and it's not just the interest rate that you need to pay attention to when it comes to refinancing. Those are, again, some great tips from Bill. We have to take a quick break, but we'll be back with more. You're listening to Asset Protection Today with Attorney Bill Alexander. We'll be right back. This is Asset Protection Today with Attorney Bill Alexander. Remember, you can always find more about Bill online at WGA Law. 
WGALaw.com, WGALaw.com. There you can view all the services that Bill provides. You can schedule a, an appointment to speak with Bill, and you can also register for the seminars. Go to WGALaw.com and just click on the seminar button. It's free to register, free to attend. These are in the form of webinars currently discussing the subjects of long-term care assistance when it comes to Medicaid and VA benefits, and as well as asset protection and trust planning, which was a lot of what we discussed today. We are out of time for today, but we hope you will join us again next weekend. This is Asset Protection Today with Attorney Bill Alexander. Have a wonderful weekend.